during COVID, we've we've been short nurses, I would say over 50% of the shifts. Like we just have so many patients and they're so acute that like we're needing more nurses to manage. And Mm -hmm. sometimes the workload is just insane. This is the Learn With Lels podcast. I'm Caitlin Jinko, also known as Lels. I believe that lifelong learning is so important. It allows us to keep improving ourselves and the world around us. And what better way to do that than to hear stories from people of all different walks of life. On the Learn With Lels podcast, I speak with people whom I think the world needs to hear from and with people whom I just think are interesting. We talk about their lives and the lessons they've been learning along the way. I'm very grateful that you've taken the time to listen. I hope you enjoy and that you keep on learning. Hi, everybody, and thank you so much for listening to episode 39 of the Learn With Laws podcast. On this episode, I spoke with my sister Jade Jenko, an ICU nurse who's been on the front lines fighting COVID-19 and caring for some of Toronto's sickest patients during this pandemic. In our conversation, we talked about how COVID-19 has changed Jade's workload, her thoughts on people's claims that COVID is a hoax slash not a big deal, and some of the terrible things she's seen in her unit during this difficult time. This conversation is just so important right now. I've seen some seriously troubling things on social media of people spreading harmful misinformation about this pandemic. Since Jade works with COVID patients every day, she was able to share real stories, facts, and feelings from inside the ICU. She's seen some really sad and horrible things, and I'm grateful for her and all the other healthcare workers for doing this exhausting work during this seriously tough time. I hope you enjoy and learn from this emotional conversation. Also, side note, Jade and I may call each other Liddy from time to time in this conversation. Neither of us are named Liddy, obviously. Um, We just call each other that sometimes, just weird sister things. So yeah, just a little heads up so that you don't get too confused. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. For our listeners, do you mind introducing yourself? So like your name and what you do. My name is Jade Jinko. I am a registered nurse. I currently work at one of the Scarborough hospitals in the ICU. Yes. And you're also my sister. Yes. As people know who listen to this, my nickname is Lels and your nickname is Ruski (laughs) slash Ruski to tattoo. Anyway. (laughs) Okay. So I wanted to have you on because I feel like I've been seeing a lot of shocking and infuriating posts online about how COVID is a hoax and it, or that it's not a big deal at all. I've seen like so much of that on Facebook. And so I wanted to talk to you about some of the things that you've seen in the ICU so that people know that it is real. It's not some kind of conspiracy and you have seen it with your own two eyes. So to get started, how have things changed in your unit since the pandemic started? Um, So prior to the pandemic starting, our ICU was getting bigger. We started with um, a 12 bed unit and then we were always having to surge into a different part of the hospital because 
we had so much patience. So we ended up taking over um, the unit next to us, which is 10 beds. So we, as, as the pandemic started, we ended up being a 22 bed unit. Um, but since the pandemic, because we had so many people that were COVID positive coming into the hospital, we ended up also having to add an additional unit, which we call our HRU unit. And that stands for a high uh, acuity respiratory patients. And um, we bring them there for OptiFlow if they don't need um, ventilation yet. So on top of the 12 beds that we previously had, we now have 10 beds and then another six beds upstairs. And then when COVID started, we started a thing called CCRT, which is um, critical care response unit. So it's a team of uh, nurses that got called for patients up on the ward. Um, and then those nurses go and assess those patients to see if they need to come down to ICU. Um, previously, we didn't have the funding for it and that's why we didn't have it before. A lot of hospitals have that already, but with COVID, it was more important because so many patients were coming in with COVID that um, they, were, they were getting sent to the units and basically quickly deteriorating. So they needed that extra support on the unit. So those are a couple of the big main changes that were made. So you had to like increase your capacity and the number of beds that you have. Yeah. So we essentially doubled the amount of beds that we had. And so how many of those patients are COVID patients and how many are non-COVID patients? So I would say right now it's about half and half, but in the first wave, almost all of the patients that we had in our ICU were COVID positive. Hmm. Um, or they were what we call a PUI. And it's just essentially, we they look like they have COVID symptoms, but we're just doing the necessary precautions until we completely ruled them out as COVID negative. Um, so basically it's like taking space away since you, at one point, like your whole floor was COVID patients. So normally that would be filled with people who are not COVID patients. So basically would that be like taking away the care you'd be able to give to people who don't have COVID? Um, I mean, it just kind of changes things. I wouldn't necessarily say it's taking away from sick patients, but um, you know, when there's other sick patients that don't necessarily have COVID, we're having to find different ways so that they can receive their care. So a lot of the times like during COVID, if we were, um, you know, at full capacity, then we were calling, we were having the doctors call different hospitals to see if they have any beds available to take some of the patients that we have just to help, to help manage the amount of patients that we had. Mm -hmm. And so when people get to your unit, like they're extremely sick, right? So it's like, you have all these COVID patients who are not doing well, but that's not all the COVID patients who are in the hospital. Like they could be in other units as well. Yeah. So like I said, we have that HRU unit, the high acuity respiratory unit, and those are the patients that are kind of borderline. So they're not necessarily um, 
they're not good patients to have on the ward because they're requiring more oxygen and a different form of, of oxygen that they can't manage on a regular ward, but they're also not quite sick enough to be in the ICU and be on a ventilator. So the patients who are in ICU are essentially the sickest patients in the hospital um, who are requiring the most oxygen or requiring intubation and ventilation and all that. And we have the other unit that's kind of in between, and then they still have COVID patients on the unit that are being managed by the ward nurses who are, who are COVID positive, requiring oxygen bar, but are essentially, you know, stable, mm-hmm. more stable. Mm-hmm. How would you say that your workload has changed since entering this pandemic? <clears throat> um, so like, so during COVID, we've, we've been short nurses, I would say over 50% of the shifts. Like we, um, like we just have so many patients and they're so acute that we're having, like we're needing more nurses to manage. And Mm -hmm. sometimes the workload is just insane where we're, you know, five or six nurses short, we're having to have nurses take care of more than one patient that you would have said, like you would not generally have like, you wouldn't generally have another patient on top of that because they're already so sick, but because we have so many patients, we're just having a hard time managing, um, you know, the patient acuity and the amount of patients. So the workload is, sorry. I was going to say, was it like that before? Like you were understaffed before the pandemic? Not like occasionally we would, we would get like a, so we have it on our phones. We get staffing requests that say like, oh, we need a nurse for tonight. Is anybody available to come in? And then usually it would be okay. But we were, like I said, a 12 um, bed unit and we would occasionally search to another unit, but it was manageable. Like usually before we would, we would run with like 11 nurses and now we're running with like almost 20 nurses per shift. Hmm. Um, so yeah, they're trying to train critical care nurses to come in. They're trying to hire new people, but it's, you know, it's sometimes not manageable. Mm-hmm. And then plus, is it like a lot of added work to have to be wearing all of the protective equipment and probably doing Yeah, so previously we would have patients that weren't on isolation and you would be able to walk in their room, no problem. But with these COVID patients, you have to, you know, protect yourself. So we're having to wear an N95 face shield. Oftentimes people would wear like a hair protector um, and all the other PPE. So a gown, gloves, sometimes people would put booties on their feet and, you know, and that's just going into the room, mm-hmm. you know? So with ICU patients, they're, they're very sick patients. So you, you have to be in their room for long periods of time or frequently. So every time you go into that room, you're having to go in with all of that stuff, taking it off to make sure that you don't, you know, contaminate anything outside. And then if you have to go back in again, you're putting all that stuff back on. Hmm. That's so, so annoying. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's time consuming, but it's necessary because we have to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were you ever scared that you would get COVID? I think everybody was a little bit scared that we were going to get it, especially at the beginning when we didn't really know what what it was, but, and, you know, you heard everything on the news saying that there was a shortage of PPE and all that, but 
you know, I'm very thankful that we never experienced a shortage. We always, if we ever needed an N95, like it was there for us, like we never ran out of gowns, which is, which is great. Um, but then you hear all those stories of, you know, people, people getting it because mm-hmm. there was a shortage of PPE. Mm-hmm. It's like crazy. All the things that you're saying about having to like increase your capacity and like always being short staff and like just that oh COVID is a hoax but it's like at one point all of your patients were COVID positive so like it's obviously not a freaking hoax if like ever, you've seen all these countless people coming through the ICU who have COVID so it's yeah seen it and like so during the first wave our hospital um we heard had the most COVID positive patients in, in the ICU, but, um, but during the second wave, one of our sister hospitals, apparently they got hit a bit harder, but they were like, I'm saying that we were five nurses short, but other hospitals were like 10 nurses short every shift. Hmm. And they're having to manage, you know, the sickest patients in the hospital and having like two to three of them to their cell. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's insane and it's not manageable, but like, it's like, what do you do? Mm-hmm. You don't have the staff and your capacity is so high. Yeah. And ICUs, you typically just have one patient at a time, right? Usually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you can have up to two for more stable patients, but generally it's, it's one patient. Mm-hmm. How many COVID patients do you think you've had come through your ICU? Um, I'm not sure exactly how many, but I think in the Scarborough hospitals they said we had up to 300 mm-hmm. come in now mm-hmm. and that's just to ICU that's just the patients who are like extremely sick yeah I, that, but that's across the the Scarborough the three Scarborough hospitals mm-hmm. but there so there's obviously way more like throughout other units of hospitals too yeah um, yeah, so I read on social media, an Ontario MPP wrote a letter to the premier asking to end lockdowns. And one of the reasons he said was because ICU capacities are at the lowest they've been in years. So how does your experience compare to what that MPP is saying? Um, not 100% sure where he got that information from. Um, like for us, that's obviously not the case. Like I said, we started, you know, the beginning of last year as a 12-bed unit, and now we're up to 24, and we're basically full almost all the time. Mm-hmm. And, like, each wave is just, it's insane. Like, everybody is just so sick and so unpredictable, and, and yeah, I don't know where he got that information from, but from, from my experience, that's not, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then not to mention, so mom is a nurse too and she said like she's lost some of her beds on her floor because they were given to the ICU because uh, they had lots of COVID patients so they needed more beds and then also like at other hospitals there are parking lot hospitals being built to accommodate all of the like increase in COVID patients and I guess other patients too so I don't know where that came from. It's so frustrating and harmful because like not only is this MPP saying that, but then people are sharing that letter. And since it's coming from an MPP, they think that it's fact. Yeah. And it's, it's sad because, because you don't, 
you're like taking away from the fact like what COVID really is like so many people are losing loved ones and and you know like their family members are in the hospital and they're and they're sick and it's just like it's just taking away from that it's like ignoring the reality Mm -hmm. um so can you tell me about some of the things that you've seen during this time maybe you could say like a story or two of some of the patients you've had and what their experiences have been like so yeah I can tell you a couple of like specific stories but I will say like when a patient is really sick with COVID like they are so sick so they come in um you know they're having a hard time breathing so we end up intubating those patients and to ensure that they get proper oxygenation we're having to sedate them um, so that means you know putting them on medications that like put them fully to st- fully asleep or putting them on medications like analgesics to make sure that they're not in any pain and they're having to be on like high doses of these medications And for people who aren't even tolerating that, we're having to paralyze them. Um, So paralyzing obviously means we, they can't move or anything. Um, But even with that, their oxygenation is still so poor that we're having to turn them on their stomachs. So this is helping them. You paralyze them? We paralyze them, yeah. So So that the ventilators that they're on is basically just breathing for them so that we can oxygenate, oxygenate them properly so that we can get their, their blood work and their, and all that stuff kind of normalized. Um, but sometimes even just, even the paralyzing and all the sedation that they're on isn't, isn't as effective as turning them on their stomach. So while they're completely sedated, while they're completely vented, while they're paralyzed, we're putting eight nurses in the room and we're turning them on, the, on their stomachs. So that's just an example of somebody who's like very sick with COVID and some of the things that that we do. So the ventilator is life support and and medications that we give our life support. So they'll they'll be on like cardiac medications, which are supporting their blood pressure and all that stuff. So because they're so sick, we're having to put them on on these medications also, which is a life support we call um, Mm -hmm. to help support their blood pressure and all that. And we're finding with patients that have COVID, they're, they're so unstable and so labile, like their blood pressure can be 200 on hundred and one second. And then the next second you look at their monitor, their blood pressure is like 85 on 50. They're super labile, super unpredictable. Um, so, so that's kind of an example of what we see when a patient is really sick with COVID. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what we do when they're, you know, when they're really, really sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a story, I've already told you a story, but I'll tell it so that everybody can hear. Um, sorry, <laughs> I'm going to cry. It's okay. Oh no. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's just so sad sometimes watching like these people. Sorry, I didn't think I was going to cry. It's okay. Um, but there was one guy. So I'm part of the CCRT team. So they called me about this patient. He's, he was about 64, I think, or 67. Anyways, close to, close to our parents' ages. And um, he was completely like healthy. 
in the community. He has a wife, he has kids, he's working. Um, and he was complaining of a lot of shortness of breath. So we ended up taking him to our HRU unit because he was like moderately stable. But with COVID, they also have problems with their coagulation. So he, he developed a PE, a pulmonary embolism. So on top of him having COVID and not being able to breathe, he had a PE, which is adding on top of his shortness of breath. So he's like very, very short of breath. Anyways, we brought him to the HRU unit um, and he was there for a couple of days on OptiFlow. And at a point he was on like almost, he was on max amount of oxygen that you can, you can give on OptiFlow. And he was like, he was like, can you please bring me downstairs to the ICU? Like I want the tube. I can't breathe anymore. Like I need, I need to be on the tube. Like I think that that's gonna really gonna help me. And then we're like, okay, let's, let's bring you down to the unit. So we brought him down and he, um, sorry. It's okay. Like usually when a patient is going to be intubated, like in normal circumstances, when it's not a pandemic, their family would be right there. Mm -hmm. um, not watching the intubation part, but like being, being with them before they get intubated and they can talk to them and just be like, oh, we'll be right here. Like after you get intubated, we'll, we'll be at your bedside, all that stuff. With COVID, you can't have visitors. You know, he's sick, his family's sick, they're in quarantine. So they can't leave their house. So he's having to, so he came down to ICU and he's having to get intubated. And the way he communicates with his family is via FaceTime. Mm -hmm. So just before he got intubated, he, um, he was FaceTiming his family and just like explaining like, you know, I'm really having a hard time breathing. Um, they're going to do the procedure. And then the family's like, oh, okay, like, well, we'll talk to you later. He's like, oh, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna put me on sedation. So I might not be able to talk to you afterwards, but I think this procedure is going to help, hopefully. And then he was so concerned about his wife more than anything. Like he, he was like, he was talking to his son and he was just like, um, son, like, just make sure like if your mom needs anything from the garage, like you help her get it, like make sure she doesn't have any problems getting anything from garage, from the garage. And you need to make sure you take care of her. And I was in the room watching this happen and it's so awful. Like, you know, that could be like our dad. Anyways, they ended up intubating him and I was like, I'm hoping that this guy does well. You know, he didn't have a lot of history, but he was, you know, up there at age. Anyways, that, that ended up being the last time we talked to his family because he, he ended up dying. So it's so sad because, you know, you, it, in normal circumstances, it wouldn't be like that. His family would be at his bedside you know, when he started to deteriorate, mm -hmm. but they're not, you know, they're having to watch him die on FaceTime mm -hmm. because they're home sick themselves, you know? Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's freaking hard. It's not ideal. <laughs> and it's so hard and it's so hard to watch that, you know? Mm -hmm. And you're so, like, you're hoping so much that they, they do well. And, you know, I really thought that he was just going to need, like, a week, maybe a week and a half on the ventilator just to help him breathe, but mm -hmm. but that wasn't the case, so. 
<sighs> Sorry. That's <laughs> yeah, okay. That's really sad. And it's crazy that it's like he was a healthy guy beforehand, before all of this. I mean, he had some, like, he had some comorbidities, but he's, he, yeah, he's, he's fairly healthy. Like, he, he works, he takes care of his family, like, he's completely mobile, you know, he's fairly healthy, but, but, you know, he, he does have comorbidities, which doesn't help when you, when you get sick, but, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So have there been times when you've been the last person that people have seen before they die? Yeah, I think a lot of them, like a lot of nurses, like that's kind of the case. Mm-hmm. You know, with COVID patients, they're so sick that they're on the sedation for so long. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's weeks of, of being on sedation and, you know, trying to wean it to see how they do and they just don't tolerate. But yeah, that is, that is the case a lot of the times you know, we're the ones that are with them when, yeah. when they die. What is that like? Because before COVID, like, people could come and be with their family members as they pass on. But now it's, it's like you that's having to take that spot since people aren't allowed to come see their family members. So what is that like? Um, it's hard. Like, it's, you know, in, yeah, like I said, in normal circumstances, the family is right there. Whenever previously, whenever a patient was really sick, we, we know when it's going, like we often know when it's going to happen, not always, but we often know like this patient is deteriorating, their blood pressure's dropping, they're maxed on their medications that support their blood pressure, their oxygen saturation is dropping and they're on the max, the max doses on the ventilator. They're, you know, they're on hundred percent oxygen. So like previously we'd be able to call the family and be like you know your loved one is not doing well I think you need to come to the hospital and and be there with them you know that was previously what we were able to do but now it's calling them to let them know that they're not doing well like I said oftentimes you're living in the same household and they're not allowed to leave their house so we're facetiming them as their family is you know Mm -hmm. dying yeah that's freaking sad yeah and that's often the case with COVID you know like these people are living in the same household so they're they're all quarantined Mm -hmm. they all can't leave their house you know Mm -hmm. but one of the people in that household got hit really hard and now they're in the hospital Mm -hmm. um I've heard a lot of people saying well like the percentages of death are so low and it's only like really old people who are at risk or people who have bad health or already. Um, so you've, have you had young or healthy patients who've had COVID? I guess kind of the guy that you were just talking about. Yeah, he was, he was like in his sixties, but he was fairly healthy, but we've had, we've had young patients who have COVID too. Um, like we, there was one guy, he was 36, I believe. And he was like a completely healthy guy. He had three kids. Like he was, he had no health history. Whether or not he had underlying stuff is, you know, we don't know for sure. But he was, he was healthy in the community, like taking care of his kids, working, all that stuff. And, and he was one of the sickest, sickest patients that I've seen with COVID. We ended up having to send him downtown for, for um, other procedures that our hospital just can't do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and then we've had patients did, who have. Sorry, did he get better? Um, I I don't actually know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't actually know if he did. I don't think he ended up ever coming back to our hospital because usually they'll repatriate him back um, once they've done everything that they could they could downtown. But I don't think that he ended up getting sent to our hospital. I don't know if he got sent to one of our sister hospitals, but mm-hmm. um, I'm not 100% sure what happened to him. But we've had patients who um, are healthy, like women who just gave birth, who have COVID, and then they end up in our unit, intubated and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we have, we have patients that range from like 25 to, you know, nineties, mm-hmm. but I would say a majority, like a lot of them that we see are in their sixties, but we, mm-hmm. we do get ones that are young also. Mm-hmm. And sixties, that's like, that's our parents basically. Yeah. Which is really scary. And I think people also don't realize that like, while someone may not die if they get really sick from COVID. Like there are people who survive, but then their health is changed completely afterwards. Yeah. Um, Or like, I don't know, I've seen people post like, oh, I had COVID and I had no symptoms. So like, there's nothing to be scared of, but like- No, and they're the lucky ones, honestly. They're, They're very lucky but it's the ones that do get really sick with COVID and they're having to go through, through all of this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're right. Like you hear on the news all the time, all these people who are saying they got COVID and they're, they're completely different person now. Like their mood changes, like their breathing changes, like their day-to-day life has changed, you know, like patients who recover from, recover from COVID. Like a lot of the times these patients are um, having to get a trach, a tracheostomy Mm-hmm. just because they can't be on the ventilator for the amount of time that they're, that they need to be. So the tra- the tracheostomy um, helps us ventilate them without having the tube, the, in, um, the ET tube in their mouth for like over three weeks. Mm-hmm. So if they're requiring more ventilation, we end up putting a tracheostomy in. And then eventually once they get weaned off of their, their ventilator, you know, they can breathe on their own and all that stuff, but they still have the tracheostomy and we still have to wean them off of that, from that type so of So that's like the whole in their throat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then they can go up to the ward once they're stable and not on the ventilator, but then they, we also have to wean them off of that type of oxygenation before they can actually remove the tracheostomy, if they can get the tracheostomy removed. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of people like, you know, it, like if they have COVID or intubated, it's not like a quick recovery. It's, it's mm-hmm. usually a very long, long recovery. Yeah. Or hospitalization is, you know, weeks to months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you didn't have symptoms, like that's, yeah, it's really just irresponsible, especially after hearing all the things that you say, it's just so irresponsible to be like, oh, it's not a big deal. Like, look at me, I had it because like, imagine if you had it worse. Yeah. It could be like all the patients that you're talking about now. <sighs> and, yeah. And it's sad because people don't, like, I had a patient a couple weeks ago, actually. Um, she was in her 60s. She, she was, like, not a well lady at home. But she lived with her granddaughter, or her granddaughter lived with her. 
her granddaughter obviously didn't care so much about COVID. Like she didn't think it was that big of a deal. So I was reading in her chart that this granddaughter would go out and party all the time, come home. She gave it to her grandmother and now her grandmother is intubated and in our ICU. Oh my God. You know, people don't, you're lucky that you, you know, you didn't have any symptoms or get sick from it, but look what you did. You gave, you gave it to your, you know, 70 year old grandmother who has all these comorbidities and now she's in her ICU intubated. Like it's like, people need to take the restrictions seriously because it's, you know, Mm -hmm. saving people's lives. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, how guilty would you feel to be that granddaughter? I feel scared to go do things now after talking to you. Honestly, every time I do anything, I I have to think about what it what it could do, you know? Mm-hmm. Like Mike, Mike doesn't do anything and he doesn't really see his parents, but you mm-hmm. know, if he does have to drop something off or whatever, like he has to think about anything that he's done in the past, you know, week. Yeah. Um, as someone who's exposed to COVID every day at work and whose work life has been totally changed by the pandemic, um, how does it feel when people ignore the rules? It's, it's frustrating, you know, like you go to work and, and we on it, we work so hard. Like our, our ICU is amazing. Like our team is is amazing like we work so hard and like we're we very much work as a team but it's it's hard work the stuff that we have to do and it's it's frustrating to watch people on social media or whatever like not caring about the rules because you know that them breaking the rules can like cause like a bunch of people to get sick you know like we live downtown and so often I see like all these anti-mask parades and it's just so frustrating because, you know, these people who are, who are down there, they're not healthy themselves. They're going to get sick and they're going to come to the hospital and need treatment. Mm-hmm. But they're the ones that are ignoring the rules. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's frustrating because like these rules are put in place to protect each other and, you know, save lives. And it like, that really is what it, what it does if you, if you follow the rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, For people who are listening to this, what do you hope they take away from this conversation? Um, That COVID is real. It's, it's really real. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you get sick, you get really sick and it's, and it's easy to pass on to people. And, you know, these rules are put in place for a reason. And if we follow them, like we are going to get back to normal, but it's, it's up to us to, to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also hope people just become more like aware of what information they're consuming and like question it. Like just because you see it on Facebook, like it doesn't make it true. Like just because you read it on a website, like I could make up a website right now and Mm -hmm. put whatever I want on it. That doesn't mean it's real. Don't believe everything you are consuming and question it especially I feel like people for like our parents age that didn't grow up with the internet and stuff like it's so easy for them to think that things are fact but it's not and you have to just question it all and go to like a real source like an ICU nurse who actually sees COVID yeah Yeah. I hope people 
you know, can learn a little bit if they listen to this, like learn about what it really is. And it's, it's a really scary thing and it's, you know, follow the rules and hopefully things get better, but you can't just say that it's not real because obviously I've seen it firsthand and it's not a nice thing to watch Mm -hmm. people go through. Yeah. Okay, Liddy. Well, is there anything you wanted to add or talk about at all? Most of the things I wanted to ask you. I think we, yeah, I think we covered quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Didn't expect to cry, but. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I think a lot of people in, in ICU have had a breakdown here and there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you think you're going to want to stay in the ICU after this? <sighs> we'll see. <laughs> it's stressful, <laughs> but it's, you know, it is rewarding when you see, um, everything that you're doing is making making an impact on these people mm-hmm. but we'll yeah. mm-hmm. okay well let's do something fun now because that <laughs> was heavy conversation <laughs> okay yeah to lighten the mood with something fun sure okay okay <laughs> i've never done this with anyone i just saw it on pinterest so okay oh so the game is to finish the sentence. It's not really a game, but finish oh. the sentence, okay? Oh, okay. Okay. My favorite thing about being a nurse is? Um, helping people. Seeing what we do is, you know, making a positive change. My favorite lockdown pastime is? Oh, man. I've spent, like, obviously I'm living with my boyfriend now, and, and that's been great, like, you know spending time with each other and learning about each other but we go for a lot of walks <laughs> <laughs> so exploring the city the empty city and you know wow. that's the most romantic thing I've ever heard <laughs> <laughs> um my f- favorite thing to watch during lockdown is oh my god we watched so much stuff during lockdown it's ridiculous um we really liked Lovesick. It's like a rom-com type um, series on Netflix. But I know it's, yeah, silly. But like, I, I'm one of those people like on Instagram that watches all the serial killer stuff. I'm very into that true crime stuff. <laughs> That's a no for me, Doug. <laughs> um, what's your favorite thing about living in Toronto? I feel like I haven't fully experienced it because everything has been shut down since I've been living here. But I will say like all the restaurants and stuff are still open for takeout. Like we, we do take out a lot and try a lot of new things. So that's nice. Cause it's, you know, it's obviously very different from Curtis where you don't have a lot of options of different types of foods, but we try a lot of different types of foods and different restaurants. So that's, that's one of our, our favorite things. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite thing about not living at home anymore is independence. <laughs> you have other answers that can't be recorded. <laughs> um, when the lockdown ends, I'm going to kiss my Cardi. Yeah, that's so true. I miss him so much. I just want to hug him and kiss him. That's so understandable. Um, 
When traveling is allowed again, I'm going to go to. Um, I would love to go to the Philippines and see our family. I'd love to go to Hawaii. Love to go to Greece. Basically, just go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Um. Oh, the last one. My favorite thing about my little sister is. <laughs> um. Hmm. um yeah this one I just put I guess your personality your quirky personality I feel like you're very dad and I'm very mom and I think maybe that's why we get along so well opposites track (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true (laughs) you're pretty crazy I know right you too (laughs) okay now my last two questions that I ask everybody the first is, what is something you've been learning lately? Does it have to be like a deep thing? <laughs> no. Um, I've been trying to learn calligraphy. Oh, yeah. That's, that's kind of fun. I make like cards and, mm-hmm. you know, write notes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Um, and what's the biggest lesson you've learned in life so far? I think when you can like spend time with your your family, your friends, like your loved ones, because life is short and, you know, you have to enjoy, enjoy it while it's here. Amen. That's a good one. Yes. Yay! <laughs> good job, lady. Thanks. Are we done now? Um, I guess so. Did you have a nice time? Yeah, it wasn't too bad. <laughs> <laughs>